If you're a parent, this episode is perfect for you because you know, as a parent, you try as hard as you can to make sure that you protect your kids, to make them feel secure and safe. And I will fully admit that I tend to take that to the extreme sometimes. I am tend to be that overbearing Italian mom who just wants to micromanage my daughter's every move and make sure that she doesn't ever, ever make a mistake. But I know that's not the real world, especially with finances. Our kids, they're going to make financial blunders. Heck, we still do. But, and I'm hoping you agree, we want to feel some relief in knowing that at least we've given them the tools to succeed, get them started on the right path. And one very important tool, according to our guest today, might be a child IRA. Before we explain, I want to say thank you for listening to the weekly Seven Figures podcast, all the information that you need to dominate your finances. I am Sandy Waters. Each week, we tap into financially savvy people and walk away with little nuggets of financial knowledge. And thank you to our friends at Family First Credit Union, big supporters of the podcast, from personal banking to business services and home loans. Their number one priority is finding a solution that works for you locally. So is a child IRA something you should consider? We cash it with our expert today, Chris Carosa, award-winning financial writer, more than three decades in the investment and retirement business. His most recent book, From Cradle to Retirement, The Child IRA, How to Start a Newborn on the Road to a Comfortable Retirement While Still in a Cozy Cradle. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Sandy. Thanks for having me. The concept of a child IRA is so interesting. But before we get there, let's talk Social Security, because this is what it all leads to, planning for our future. You hear so much about Social Security. Is it going to be there? Is it not going to be there? But we're paying into it a lot. Why would it ever go away? Well, some people have called Social Security nothing more than a legal Ponzi scheme, because people who are putting into it today are actually paying other people who are older that aren't going to be around anymore. Right. Now, the issue of Social Security is very confusing, and a lot of people make comments or headlines about it possibly going bankrupt. Technically, it won't go bankrupt. However, it will go insolvent, according to the current projections by the government. That's a subtle difference. It really doesn't matter. The bottom line is this. Probably people below the age of 50 may not be getting Social Security the way they expect to get it, and certainly those below the age of 30 might not even be getting Social Security at all. Do you really think they're paying into it, though? How can you take away something that you're giving money to? All right. Do you know politicians? They're very crafty. (laughs) They can do things. They can take something away from you in a way that you don't believe they're taking it away from you. So, for example, with Social Security, it's actually pretty easy, and they're doing it now. And that is Social Security originally was designed to provide a set amount of income. Enough said. No, No strings attached. Well, now, if you earn a certain amount of money, you have to pay taxes on that Social Security. So that, in effect, reduces your benefit on Social Security. And that's the way they'll draw down or, or, or make Social Security less likely to get to you, at least in full, in total. The projections go out to 2095, so that's roughly 70 years from now. And they're assuming that they'll still be paying it out, but it's only being paid out at a 60 to 75% rate of what we're currently being promised. So do you think that they would just keep pushing the age? Okay, it's not 62, it's not 65, it's not 67. Oh, it's 75 now, you got to 
because we're living longer? Because that's a major factor in all this, too. Well, if you look at the original Social Security, when it was designed, people started getting their Social Security benefits, and they only had a life expectancy of two years more. Okay, that's crazy when I saw that in the book. Right, and guess what? We're a lot more healthy than we used to be, and we're living 20, 30 years longer after retirement. So they didn't prepare for that. It's tough. It's You can't, I mean, it's a good news, bad news sort of thing. You want to live longer and you want to be able to provide people enough money to live when they're yeah. retired. But that wasn't baked into the cake at the very beginning. And it's kind of tough to go back in time. Do you feel like too many people are banking on counting on Social Security to be our only stream of income upon retirement? You want to know something that amazes me? I've talked to lots of people, hundreds and hundreds of people. And I am surprised how many can survive just on Social Security. I did not believe it. And a lot of the financial service providers I talk to don't believe it either. But when we talk to individuals, we see how they can do it. I had one person who just outlined all the expenses that they expected to have during retirement. And they were going to retire in a year. So they had a fairly good handle on their expenses. And they were able to survive just on Social Security. So I think that that's an underreported statistic. Ah, it just it okay. just doesn't make headlines. It's very hard to believe until you actually see it with your own eyes. Well, are these the individuals that can live not the most lavish lifestyle? Are these individuals who are, I don't so, need to take a trip around the world. <laughs> so to, to borrow a term maybe or a phrase from Bill Clinton, it all depends on what you mean by lavish. Ah. Uh, so I think that what... One person considers lavish and exciting might be way overboard for another person. And I know, like, for me, I'm not a person who travels. And I don't consider retirement to be to include a lot of travel. By the way, I haven't officially talked to my wife about this, so I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. But I think I, I don't really think that I, I need to spend a lot in travel, for example, in retirement. And there's other people with similar sort of proclivities. They They would... They, they would prefer to do something easier, simpler, stay at home. I mean, I like to write. So for me, your retirement might just be 24-7 writing. And yeah, you don't, that doesn't cost a lot yeah. of money. A few bucks for electricity for the computer, but that's it. Forgive me for not knowing this. The people who can receive Social Security are not only the people who paid into it, right? Is that part that of the problem? That is correct. You're actually hitting on a good point. Social Security was originally designed just for retirement. However, it has morphed into more than that, where people with disabilities or widows and orphans all can uh, accumulate some of the benefits from Social Security. That is really what makes Social Security most on the edge. So if they separate the insurance portion of Social Security from the retirement portion of Social Security, then I think that it'll last a little longer. But that's a that's that's kind of like a, a a gap that maybe politicians might be too afraid to do. With Trump being president, has he made any changes, or is there anything that he is focused on that we have not heard of yet when it comes to our Social Security? I think the thing about Trump is that he said that he wants to protect Social Security. Okay, now let's transition into pensions because there's a good chunk of your book that that uh, dissects pensions and what they were created for. Private pensions versus public pensions, do you feel like that's a big area that is drawing so much of our taxpayer dollars is paying for these pensions? The private pensions aren't really taxpayer dollars, but the public pensions are. Do you hear of any private pensions anymore? Are there any companies that really 
Oh, yeah. The, the bigger companies still have them. They They're do. legacy pensions. They're slowly getting rid of them. They're disintermediating, as they mm-hmm. call them, or de-risking. Those are fancy terms that financial people use, <laughs> which basically means they're trying to get out of the pension business. But It, it sounds it, like an overwhelming promise. It is. It's the same problem that you have with Social Security. You yeah. have too few workers putting into a pension system that's paying out to too many workers because they're living well longer than what was originally expected. Yeah. If you look at public pensions, that's even worse because at public pensions, you're allowed to retire at a much younger age. So instead of living 20 years longer, you're living 40 or 50 years longer. Okay. Now, forgive me. If you have a pension, a public pension, you work hard for a living, good for you. We all had the option to pick a career that offers that. But I am so insanely jealous of those who have a pension because here we are, the good majority of us, have to plan not only for our future in retirement just in case Social Security isn't going to be a lot. We have nothing if, if Social Security doesn't help us. Not if only do have, we have nothing, but we're actually supporting the other people. Right, so. which I know that's going to come out so wrong, but that I think is the frustration. And then you hear the politicians say, oh, we need more money. We don't have enough. Is that one of the major reasons why? I think if you look at some of the more innovative states, they're trying to shift away from a traditional defined benefit or pension plan for public employees more towards what's called a defined contribution or, in essence, a 401k plan. Okay. So there, the liability doesn't exist at the state level or at the taxpayer level. It goes directly to the individual. The individual is responsible for saving for their own retirement, just like you and me are. We're responsible for saving yeah. in our own 401k plans or IRAs or anything like that. So if states begin to go into that direction... Do you think, though, they will? Well, some states already are. States like New York might be a little bit difficult just because of the politics of it. Uh, but you do see states that are already doing it. It's just a small handful or? Just a small handful right now. You know, you really want to know what will make it happen, like yeah. a gusher. Yeah. If you have a state like Illinois totally default on their pensions or California, those sta- there are towns in California that have gone bankrupt because they couldn't pay their bench- or their pensions. Oh, really? So you've already started to see this. It's, it happened mostly after 2009. 2009 was the nadir, the low point of the market, and much of these pensions are invested in the market. Because the market went down, they didn't have the money to pay off their former employers, their retirees. So the next economic crisis, you'll probably see a lot more states being put in that situation, and that in turn will put on the political pressure to shift from this defined benefit to a defined contribution. But there's really nothing we can do. Yes, there is. We can can become self-reliant. Take responsibility for our own retirement and for the retirement of our children. And you talk about the history of pension, which I do talk about in the book. It's a rather fascinating subject. I really didn't look into it until I wrote this book. But originally in America, if you think about retirement, there was no retirement plans. Well, there was. It was your family. That's why farmers had 10 kids, because those kids would run the farm as the parents got older. And it wasn't Uh though you retired as you do now, to a life of leisure, it's just you work less and less. You Your work was really assigned based on your capabilities. And the family took care of itself. That changed as we shifted from an agricultural economy to an industrial economy. Now everyone's working in a factory. You don't have this family support for retirement. 
So you became more reliant on third parties on the factory mm. for pensions. I talk a little bit about the history of that and how those public pensions and, and private pensions started. But now I'm thinking as I wrote the book, as I went through the child IRA, and I look particularly where it's most advantageous right, right now, which is family-owned businesses, within family-owned businesses, I'm thinking maybe we're seeing the pendulum beginning to swing the other way, where it's more important for families to think how are they going to support each other. Now, it's not the same as a family farm, but the idea of planting seeds for retirement as the children are young, when they're young, when they're even newborn, going that far back, so that by the time the children are ready to, or the parents are ready to retire, the children have a good foundation for their own retirement, Mm -hmm. and so there's less pressure financially on the children, and maybe they can help the parents, or maybe the parents don't need the help. But you you see what I'm saying. We're kind of moving more towards a family-centric solution to retirement as opposed to a third party, whether it be government or corporate um, solution. That should just be the icing on the cake. I think that's really the focus needs to be how do we educate ourselves. And I feel like there's an influx of individuals who really do want to take control of their finances and, and take care of themselves. And then, like you said, have the pension or, you know, or the Social Security be the icing on the cake. If you look at the financial behavior of millennials, they tend to be more do-it-yourselfers. They're, yeah. they're less likely to hire a financial professional. Now, that's what's going on right now, and that just could be where they are demographically in the financial spectrum. But the fact that they're do-it-yourselfers, the fact that they're willing to study and operate everything in their hand, on their phone. Yep. Listen to podcasts like this. That's Actually, right. Read that's books absolutely like yours. right. Yeah. And that's a good sign. That's that's a more of an entrepreneurial type activity. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think is promising. Let's move now on to your idea. The way that we can solve all of this is the child IRA. First, we'll describe the general concept. The okay. general concept is pretty easy. Newborn baby, from the from the moment they're born, from the first year that they're born until age 19, if that baby or child put $1,000 a year, so that's a total of $19,000, into an IRA, and then earned 3% less than the average return. That's 3% less than the average return. When that child retires at age 70, which will probably be the retirement age then, they'll have two and a quarter million dollars. So that's an amazing head start on getting ready for retirement. The problem, of course, is that how do they earn that money? They need to earn the money in order to put it in. So we looked at, we interviewed several different people, both people who have already started child IRAs, people who have had child IRAs started for them when they were children, but they're adults now, and also the industries that employ children. And you you might think, well, first of all, there's a federal law, child labor law, that says you can't work unless, unless you're 14 or above. So automatically people think, well, my child's less than 14, so there's no way this can apply to them. Well, yes and no. There are two exemptions. One of them... Most obviously, if you watch commercials on TV, child actors, child models. I mean, there, there has to be a baby that's paid money to do the diaper commercial or do See, the baby you know, food commercial. When I read that part in the book, I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. But it feels so out of reach for me. Ah, yes. And that's exactly <laughs> what most people think. So what can they do? And this is where I turn to the family-owned business. If oh. you own your own business... You can use your child in your own advertising. I'll tell you a story. 
I was at a conference, New York Press Association, since I'm involved in newspapers and everything, a couple of weeks ago, and the presenter was a young guy who very first thing he did was showed up a slide of him and his wife and his 11th-month-old daughter. And hey, this is me, this is my family, yay. And at the end, I went up to him and I sort of jokingly said, so how much did you pay your daughter? And he laughed, oh, she just likes taking pictures, blah, blah, blah. Well, then I explained the child IRA to him and the fact that I just had the book come out. He said, whoa, 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 you're kidding. Because he owned his own business, and that's where he had the advantage. He immediately said, can I buy this book? And I said, yeah, you could. Where do you buy it? You know, wherever you buy books online, yeah. you know, I don't care. <laughs> he pulls out his phone, goes to his, uh, you know, whatever account, mm -hmm. and buys the book right in front of my face. And this is the reaction that I get when I talk to these young family own business yeah. people who have these kids. They can't believe that they're they're really kind of like leaving this money on the table. One of the headlines that I use is, are you willing to save taxes today, save money on taxes today in exchange for increasing family wealth? You say, whoa, I mean, that's that's two good things. I don't get it. Where this, yeah. Where's the trick? Right. That's how easy it is. So I think in the book I describe a lot of examples, a lot of case studies of children below age 14 who are earning money. Now, the other exception that I was going to say to the rule, that 14 rule, is a, a, a child can work for their parents' business. And here's, here's how you really save the taxes. If the child's a minor and is working for a family-owned business where the parents are the sole owners, no income tax because they're not making that much money, but even better, no payroll tax. It's one of the few exceptions to payroll taxes oh. that people really don't realize. Yeah. And when I'm going to talk to people, talk to groups about this, there are accountants in the room who actually understand this. Oh, yeah, I know that. Well, you know, but there are family-owned business owners or family business owners who've never been told that. So, wait, you mean I could hire my kid and not pay the payroll taxes? Now, these, these have to be legitimate jobs. You can't just put them on the payroll and throw I know, money I was just going to ask you. Yeah, and job. I do, in the book, I list by age what are the typical kinds of jobs that these children will yeah. have. Okay, and what about the parents who don't own their own business? You can create your own business, and by that I mean when I talk about family-owned businesses, I'm not just talking about full-time corporate-type businesses. I'm talking about part-time business. I'm talking about doing things on the side, whether it's selling cosmetics or you know whatever sort of ah, side business that you okay. can have. Okay, and that counts. But then you have to claim that when you go come tax time, you have to say I have a side business of yeah, it's Schedule C or or sole proprietorship. I mean, you could talk to your accountant the, the, who normally does your taxes, and they'll tell you the the best way to do it for your own situation. Okay. And again, that's what I always say in the book. You know, I'm I'm not an accountant nor a lawyer. You're just throwing I've, out suggestions, ideas. Yeah, yeah. I talked to a lot of them. I interview them in the book yeah. so you can see what they say. But even if you're reading something that another accountant or a lawyer says, you need to talk to your own because a lot of these rules are state-based. The way it is now, I couldn't just open up an IRA and set that money aside for my daughter. It has to be. It has to be her. earned income. Okay. So if your how how old is your daughter? I have a 13-year-old and an 8-year-old. Okay, so children that age typically will do yard work or they'll do babysitting. Now, you could pay them for doing that or they could do it for other people and get paid. A lot of the examples that I use in the book are exactly that, where parents will save, will take uh, the couple hundred dollars that the child earns for mowing lawns 
and put it into an IRA. And you can do that. That is earned income. You have to keep track of it. Okay. So when we open up the IRA, we put it in the child's name. You have to. You, as the parent or guardian, technically is the one who signs the paperwork. Someone below the age of 18 are not allowed or is not allowed to sign a contract. So you are going to set up, and they're called different names. They're called minor IRAs. They're called custodial IRAs. They're called those sort of things. So it's like a custodial checking account, but this is now a custodial IRA. Correct. Okay. Now, here's the question that, and I've been talking to people about this book. You know, what do you think about this idea? This is a great idea. Oh, my gosh, I'm 13 years behind here. I should have started a long time ago. There are a lot of people who said, well, wait a minute. I have to save for myself. I have to save for their college, and now I have to save for their retirement, too. Well, of course, yes, you do. <laughs> There's a lot of things. Yet. Life isn't easy. But if you do work it's today. feeding the kids too much, I guess. You know, that was one of the questions that a lot of people had. And in fact, reporters have that a lot when I talk to them. Uh, this book was, was featured on CNBC and Inc. Magazine. So I've got these national media people asking me questions so cool. like that. And you're right here from Rochester. <laughs> We're so proud. And the, when I interviewed adults who had child IRAs, yeah. and when I interviewed the parents who set up the IRAs for their children, Universally, I get two two comments. One, I should have started this earlier or I should have put more money in. And two, this really taught my kids self-responsibility. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, think about what motivates kids. How many kids are so interested and so caught up in, in video gaming, in any sort of gaming? Yeah. They like to keep score. I don't know if you ever did T-ball or, you know, I used to coach yeah. T-ball. And, of course, you don't keep score and that sort of thing. As coaches, you don't keep score. But every single kid keeps score. Yes. It doesn't right. matter. The, right. the score doesn't, but they keep score. <laughs> so this is the thing about the child IRA. This is what I've discovered is I talk to these people. The kids love keeping score, even my own kids. Now, I started, again, I didn't see this until my kids were teenagers. And, by the way, the book tells you how you can catch up, not only if you're a teenager, but if your child is – now out of college, what you can do to do that. But what I saw in my own children is this, they're not interested in investing. Well, they weren't interested in investing, but they were interested in counting their money. And this is their money. And it really doesn't change because you can't touch the IRA. Yeah. So all you do over time, and you know, hopefully if you invested in a you know good place, you'll see it grow year after year. And you see it grow faster when you make the contribution. So this is almost like a self-fulfilling uh, kind of motivational tool to get the young kids or the young adults, uh, even at this point, motivated to save for their own retirement, to think for their future. Even though it's hard for them to think that long term, it's hard for grown adults to think retirement, yet to watch that number grow. It's the exciting. growth. You it's have the to growth. have them highly involved then. Right. You won't, they won't see. They won't see 70 at age 70. Yeah. They won't think of age. They no, don't right. even think 10 years down the road, let right. alone 50 years down the road. So you can't rely on that. But they do see year over year what's going on, and they like winning. Everybody likes winning. And so if you have more money this year than you do last year, you're winning. Yay. Let's do more of this. Yeah. Okay. And have them help contribute to it. Like, I know a lot of what you wrote in the book is, okay, once they earn their money, you just gift that amount into their IRA, but you can also have them directly put it in. Right. There's two situations where that gifting comes into play, and they both have to do really with college. A lot of kids will get money, get jobs, and they'll save for college. 
and that's good. You want them to do that. That's another way of building responsibility. And that money can then go to college. They'll spend that money on college. But it doesn't mean that they can't contribute. And the way they contribute is through gifts. And this is where the parents and the grandparents and whoever, you know, a kid has a birthday, they, they give them a $25 check or something. Well, you know, what are they going to do with that check? Well, now that money can go into their IRA. And $1,000 a year really isn't that much if you break it down. If you um, and, and your special person go out to a fancy dinner once a month, that's $1,000 a year. It, yeah. it sounds almost crazy where that's all it, it takes is $1,000 a year and your child will be set. Yeah. I mean, it, it, two and a quarter million dollars is a lot. Yeah. It'll definitely give you that relief knowing that your kid's going to be okay. That's for sure. Chris Carosa, his book, From Cradle to Retirement, The Child IRA, How to Start a Newborn on the Road to Comfortable Retirement While Still in a Cozy Cradle. We appreciate you being here. Thank you very much, Sandy. And I encourage all your listeners to go to childira.com to find out more about what this book is about. Awesome. Thank you. We're going to leave you with one more little financial nugget. My dad. Father knows best. My dad's two cents. Have a safe Memorial Day weekend. And thank you again for subscribing and telling a friend about the Seven Figures podcast. Talk to you next week. About half of all mutual fund managers do not invest in the funds they manage. Think about it. So before you invest your hard-earned money in a mutual fund, ask your financial planner if the manager of that fund is personally invested in it. If the fund manager doesn't have enough confidence to invest in it, you should neither.